Good morning. Am I on? Doesn't sound like I'm on. Anyway, good morning once again. We're glad to see all of you here this morning as we excuse me as we gather around God's word and to worship. Um, we have a bulletin. Uh, there is an announcement there for the students that's ongoing for their summer camp that's coming up here just around the corner on June. Uh, June 25th through July 1st. So um, pray that pray for them as they prepare for that summer camp uh, come, coming up. Uh, also, happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. And I hope you have just a wonderful time with your family this morning or today. Um, well, VBS is over. And my understanding is it went very well. And we thank for all, the, all of you that participated in the VBS this year. And it's not too early to start praying for next year. You know, it's always, you know, a big help to start early on all these, uh, all these ministries that we have here at El Paso Bible Church. Um, as you know, the women's uh, Bible studies are on break for the summer as well. And continue to pray also for the ongoing ministries here at El Paso Bible Church as we continue to serve and continue to worship the Lord and raise up the name of the, Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, in preparation for our pastor's message, I'd like for you to open your Bibles to John chapter 10, as I read two verses out of that, verses 14 through 15. I was just thinking of something, you know, as I said, open your Bibles, one of these days it's just going to be a bypass, you know, word, because... All of you probably have your laptops, your phones, and all the electronic equipment. And pretty soon, you say, open your Bible. It's going to be kind of archaic now. <laughs> I hope it doesn't. But um, anyway, but that's our middle name, El Paso Bible. Looking at John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, it says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. Praise God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, this morning, we just raise up the name of Jesus, who Father gave his life for his sheep, as we just read the scripture. Father, we thank you that he is the good shepherd. And as a good shepherd, Father, he looks after us to do what is best for us. And so, Father, this morning, we thank you so much for the privilege of allowing us to be here. Even as the sheep are in the pasture, Father, they, they're nurtured. Father, even here at Pastor Bible Church, pray that those that attend, Father, nurtured by the word this morning. And so, Lord, we thank you for all your goodness and your love and your grace. And there's so many people that aren't with us, Father. Some in vacation, some <clears throat> are ill, Father. We just pray that you bring them back to our uh, fold here at El Paso Bible Church, Father, as the days go on. And so, Lord, we thank you again for the wonderful and great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That because of him, Father, we have life. And we say thank you. Bible says in all things give thanks and we say thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise him, we love him and Father pray that today will be the day that you be honored Lord. 
in the midst. And so, Lord, thank you so much once again for allowing us to be here to worship you in song and even in the study of the word, Father. Bless this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give him glory by worshiping him. Would you stand with me and us?
says my flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever and because of that I'm thankful this morning Take away my sin. 
Well, good morning. morning. You all doing all right today? Are you awake today? Okay, that's good, because it's a questionable after VBS week, isn't it? Volunteers. You could be a little bit zapped today. My wife is a little bit zapped, and I'm a little bit zapped, and I didn't even do anything. I was just here. It made me, it made me tired just watching. But um, great VBS week. I had to admit that 
it was a little disconcerting going from having all the kids running around in this building to being nearly dead quiet. <laughs> Parents, right? There's 40 kids around and you, it's dead quiet. You know, that was, uh, that was disconcerting, but in a good way. We'll, we'll call it that, huh? Uh, we're going to continue on today in 1 Peter, um, and I have explained why. One is that I don't dare, I don't dare, and I'm not saying, oh, children, go to children's church. Go to children's church. Go, go, go. See, I'm falling down already. You can tell I'm tired. Uh, bye, children. Have a good children's church. Uh, parents, if you're new here, uh, you can always keep your kids with you. We don't confiscate them, but you can tell that they have a pretty good time. Um, and learn about Jesus and God's Word there. Uh, so that's up to you every time, all the time. Uh, but we do provide it. Um, I don't dare teach a Father's Day sermon when I didn't do a Mother's Day sermon because Mama didn't raise no fool. But I always mention it anyway, even if the sermon isn't one. Um, and that is because, there, I mean, there are instructions for parents. There's instructions for mothers and fathers. But the main concern of Scripture is that you be like Christ and not conform necessarily to someone's idea of what a parent is or whatever. And there's a lot of psychobabble out there telling you how you should do all this or that. If you pursue Christ in your life, you will fix those problems, okay? Um, And I will admit that part of the reason... I'm Honestly, my dad uh, has just passed away a few years ago at a very young age, and I have a hard time, frankly, so you'll have to forgive me. I am a human, Um, and so I have a hard time doing that. But I would like this, and one of the things that I come across a lot of times, uh, and in my own experience, is that as, as men growing up to be men in our homes, one of the things that is lacking and I want to remind you, fathers, not to lack. It's not that I think you do, okay? But tell your sons in particular that you are proud of them. That you are proud of them. So critical. Because I think a lot of us, and my generation grew up, um, even with godly fathers, and did not hear that. And I want to tell you right now, as a pastor, I'm proud of you, fathers. Um, There is a lot of whining out there in pastoral circles about the state of masculinity and the state of fatherhood in their churches, and I get to be the annoying pastor that says, well, you ought to come to El Paso Bible Church because we got rock stars. We have really good dads. Not perfect. Don't raise your hand if you think you're perfect because I'll have to shoot you down. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But guys, you're doing real well, and I'm proud of you. And it honors the Lord, and I think, and I get excited when I get to be the the odd man out. And I get to say, our dads are real good. So, if you still have the opportunity uh, to honor your father in person, or over the phone, or however, do that today. All right? Okay. Best that you can. I know it's more complex than that for a lot of people, but to the best that you can honor your father and your mother, it comes with a blessing in Scripture. Uh, Let's pray before we begin. Uh, Father, we thank you for this day, and we do thank you for our dads 
here today, our fathers, and we thank you for the particular place uh, that you have delegated um, responsibilities and privileges and blessings to the, to the fathers on this earth. Uh, Father, as a reflection of who you are, a reflection of your care and concern and love and discipline uh, to their children. Thank you for that. Father, we thank you um, for your continued blessings and healing. Um, we continue to pray for those uh, who are hospitalized today. Thank you um, that some are no longer and we thank, hospitalized. And we thank you uh, for bringing them back. And Father, we pray uh, that our service today and our hearts, our minds, and our application of your word would be honoring to you and to your son and bring glory to you. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, so we've been talking about this. Um, this is not a surprise to you uh, that we're talking about our actual dual identity. Um, identity is a real problem in, in hermeneutics, right? We talk about this at some length at different points. Uh, that one of the key responsibilities when we read Scripture and when we're applying Scripture and interpreting Scripture is to identify the audience. Uh, it's relatively simple most of the time to so identify the author, at least the ultimate author, right? God's Word. We call it God's Word because God is the inspiration uh, for it, wrote through human authors, and many of them are identified, uh, particularly in the New Testament. But the audience throws people for a loop. And, and people do suffer from identity problems. And when they do Bible study, they suffer from thinking that they are Israel in the church. That you somehow are supposed to embrace Israel's promises. That somehow, mentally, you're supposed to do the gymnastics that require you to take those, for real, we're in Sunday school today, to take those meets and bounds descriptions of inheritance and force feed that into Texas, you know, and try to embrace the promises that were made to Israel, then you're going to claim this as uh, Jesus' kingdom, all of which is, in fact, ludicrous. <laughs> there are things to learn from that, but that's not it. But it gets simpler sometimes with the, well, all of the epistles. All of the epistles are written to the church. Y'all know the epistles, those are not the wives of the apostles. That's the old joke, right? The epistle, it means letter. Uh, and so the letters are written to saints. They're written to believers in Jesus Christ who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, the audience got very narrow, didn't it? Very specific. And Peter describes those believers in Jesus Christ who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit this way. He says, you are choice and you are aliens. That means that you have a special purpose, uh, that God values you highly, particularly for the purpose that he has for you to fulfill in your life. That is the way he describes his own son in his earthly ministry, that he is choice. He has a unique, special purpose to fulfill that he has designed for him to do. And so we are in him, thus we are choice. We are aliens. That used to be an academic exercise, I think, in my life, to consider myself an alien, because I always felt like I belonged pretty well where I was born. Anybody? 
I don't anymore. When I go back to San Antonio, I'm like, ooh, I don't fit here. You guys are from a similar region, right? There's a whole lot of not Texans in that part of Texas, for one thing. It's changed. I have little less problems now identifying as an alien, okay? I know that's not a popular word. It's not politically correct. Surprise, surprise. But Pastor Josh, he's just not politically correct, right? Alien just means stranger. Somebody doesn't have a legal right to be where they are. And that's a sojourner would be another synonymous term in Scripture. Somebody who's somewhere temporarily and, and doesn't have an inheritance there. It's a dual identity. It's an actual identity. See, the difference is that I can declare that I'm a ballet dancer. I, I could declare all sorts of things about myself. That doesn't make it true, right? <laughs> Let me try that again. I, I can declare myself, I can self-identify as almost anything, and that does not make it accurate, right? I may be fat, but I'm no elephant, right? But when God says something about me, his voice, his will, his volition is creative. It establishes reality. It does not subject itself to reality. So when God says that I am choice and that I'm an alien, that I am in Christ, that I'm clothed with his righteousness, that I'm absolutely his child, that is a creative event. It makes reality. It is not dysphoria. That's the difference because I'm not in charge of what happens to me. God is. He says I'm a choice alien. He says that I, I have blessings that come from that, that I am regenerated, I'm born again, uh, that I have this identity in Christ, that I have blessings that come with it. I have an imperishable inheritance that is ready for me. I have opportunities to serve in ways that I I didn't have before. I have strengths. I have gifts. I have specialties. Um, we have obligations. <clears throat> Remember, we talked about this at some length in First John. It is uh, not a. It's not a dichotomy, right? Uh, to say that love is an obligation right? You, you are obligated to love. That's not a problem. You have a responsibility to love certain people, right? Only, you only have a problem with love if you're not using a biblical definition. I mean, the problem with love is an obligation if you're not using a biblical definition. If you're using a biblical definition, then God can command you to love somebody that isn't lovable. So there, you're stuck loving me, guys. I know I'm not that lovable, and that's all right. I'm a little grouchy. I've got ADD. I got more hobbies than I got cells, I think. I am, I, I'm a nut. You gotta love me anyway. I gotta love you too. That's an obligation. And I'm okay with that. Supposed to love one another from the heart. Uh, in order to do that, we do are obligated to know each other. Well, this has come up recently uh, in a lot of post pandemic. 
People were totally fine with never seeing each other, never talking to each other except through a screen. Um, you, you cannot fulfill your obligation to love someone through a screen. It's just foreign to Scripture. Absolutely. Can't do it. You could not explain that to anybody that received this text from anyone, how they could do that, any more than you could explain to them how a kingdom could be totally spiritual. It's all lunacy. We're told to long for the word because we don't know how to love Christ and others if we don't know what Christ has told us to do and how to love each other from the heart. We're to long for the word, not grow bored by it. We're to keep our behavior excellent. Keep our behavior excellent. Now, understand that your pastor is an odd duck. Uh, because I understand this differently. Your, your behavior, excellent, does not mean that you uh, have no spine. And it doesn't mean that you don't speak directly, which is perceived as malice today in most circles. Right? That spade is a spade. You hate all other cards, don't you? I like tangerines. You hate grapes. I'm not being malicious. We're just speaking. Um, And I will tell you this. I don't think that you can be like Jesus if you never get angry. This isn't new information for those of you who have been here for a while. If you never get angry, you're not going to be like Jesus. If you have no enemies, you will not be like Jesus. You cannot be like Jesus without those two features. Keep your behavior excellent. Is the way that Scripture says, keep your behavior like Jesus's. In fact, that's in this text we're looking at today. We're still introducing it. Keeping your behavior excellent has a definition, and it is not to keep your behavior in the way that is most inclined to make you prosperous or liked. That's not excellent behavior. And then we're to submit to God's established order over our lives. Obligations. So we've still got more obligations, actually. We're still here. This is the epistles. The epistles are given as instruction for the church. And there's a, a connection point here. It's not, not an optional experience that we have. So verse 21, well, let's back up. I missed a little part of that, and it's the not American part. And we don't want to miss that. So we have a real problem in probably other places, but stuck up here, I see the problem, and that is that we believe that keeping our behavior excellent in some way is going to exclude certain experiences from our lives. That not only will it make us successful, that it will prevent us from suffering somehow. And that isn't going to work, right? Keeping your behavior excellent is to follow the pattern that Jesus set. How did that work out? Okay. I know you all volunteered for VBS this week. Did Jesus' excellent, perfect behavior prevent him from experiencing suffering? No. That comes up again. So... 
when Peter says submit to the authorities, he doesn't say submit to the authorities so that your life is pleasant and easy and nice and you're well-regarded and well-received and you have a high reputation. He doesn't say that. He says that if you suffer for doing what is right, meaning that should be your expectation, that you suffer for doing what is right, that even when you do what the government says, you suffer. Even when you do what your boss says, you will suffer Suffering faithfully finds favor with God. Suffering for doing what is right credits you with favor. God looks on that with favor. Do you see an option for not suffering there? The only alternative is suffering for doing what is not right, which doesn't find favor with God. So which one are you going to choose? (laughs) Suffering for doing what is right is the right answer, in case y'all were wondering. The pastor's kids in the room, Jacob, <clears throat> are, are wondering whether, what the answer is, you know. Just kidding, Jacob. I have to pick on him because he's the only pastor's kid in here that's not mine that I'm aware of. Suffering for doing what is right is part of the program. <laughs> and that's the connection point. It's not optional. Uh, we consider it optional. It's rather the reverse, that it is exceptional and unusual that we would not experience suffering in this life for excellent behavior. That is the exception. Excellent behavior brings suffering. Doing what is right brings suffering. So let's look at this verse. For you have been called for this purpose. We have a purpose statement. Now we know what to expect because Peter's already given us an indication of what he's going to explain here. That um, we're supposed to do what is right, we're supposed to suffer for it, and we're supposed to patiently endure the suffering. That's how that's supposed to go. But he's, you're asking the same question of me. Well, why should I do what is right if I'm just going to suffer for it? Why should I do what is right if I'm just going to suffer for it? Peter anticipates that question in his readers. He has, in some ways, I think he has a disadvantage. He's not sitting there eyeball to eyeball. I'm looking at your eyeballs and I can read that. Why should I do what is right if I'm going to suffer for it? Because we're supposed to do what is right, to suffer for doing what is right, to patiently endure the suffering. Why should we? For you've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So why should I? Because we're supposed to follow Christ's example. That's what he says. That was Christ's example for us. Now there are biblical limitations here. There are people all over this globe, in certain parts, well, all over, I'll say all over, that during the Paschal week, Holy Week, 
literally have themselves nailed to crosses and hoisted up on a beach somewhere. That is not one of the things you're supposed to follow Christ in doing. You understand? There are the central work of Christ is in fact a substitution, especially not for theatrics, right? Because that's what it is. That's just theatrics. If, uh, there were people that were crucified for the sake of their testament of Christ and martyred for that. That's a substitution. He took our place. He took our place so that we did not have to occupy that. Right? Christ died on the cross in our place. Substitution. We're not supposed to follow that example. We're supposed to believe in it. To trust in it. But we are given commands here to follow in his steps. Now you need to understand that. When Scripture says to walk after somebody, to come after them, um, it is to live your life the way they lived their lives. To walk after somebody. It's pretty consistent. In fact, Jesus said that if anyone would come after me, must take up his cross and follow me. Now, do not make the mistake of so many fools today and make that into a how-to-get-saved statement. That is not a how-to-get-saved statement. That is a how-to-follow-Jesus statement. How-to-be-faithful statement. Specific examples are given here. Following his steps. The things that he did, not what was done to him. But he did leave you an example in the way he lived his life. Leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. He committed no sin. He did what was right at all times. No lies, no deceit, no rationalization, no manipulation of his experiences or his vocabulary. When he was even verbally abused, he did not verbally abuse in return. That's what reviling is. You don't use that word very frequently, do you? Revile. Now you might not understand. There's a there's a line there. Also, we already talked about it to some degree. Um, that is not about how something is received. That's about what you do. You're not responsible for how somebody hears outside. I mean, right. No? When I tell somebody that something is a sin today, they look at me and say, why do you hate me? I don't hate you. If I hated you, I wouldn't say anything to you. 
Or if I hated you, I would say, no, just carry on. You know, the wages of sin is death. That's cool. Jesus spoke quite harshly. And our, our English translations soften a lot of it. They soften a lot of what Paul said, actually, because people, even when they translated into English, were a little bit horrified at how harshly Jesus, and particularly Paul, spoke. How directly and kind of how earthly, earthy they were. So you're not even used to it as Christians, and you think you go to a church where we just proclaim, you know, the Word of God, um, and you would be horribly offended <laughs> by some of the statements that Jesus and Paul both stated directly. You would be. He only spoke truth. Jesus did. He did not revile in return. Everything that he spoke was because he loved his enemies and his friends and the children of God. But he spoke harshly and directly with no malice. It is something that I try to do. Don't always succeed. Ever tried to get, squeeze every last ounce of malice out of your brain, out of your emotions? Ever? No? There's a reason that James cautions us to be slow to speak. Be slow to speak, you'll trip up less. But he never delved into what we would call an ad hominem attack. He truthfully identified the issue. He truthfully identified the people there in front of him. He truthfully identified his, his enemies, and he was legitimately righteously angry as appropriate. But he did not revile them. He did not hate them or speak abusively to them. It's hard to stay on the right side of that line all the time. Jesus did that. And if we are to fulfill our purpose, we need to do that. When he suffered, he uttered no threats. In our culture, what happens when somebody trips on the steps of a restaurant? Anybody? Tort law. Yeah. You just became a millionaire because a pebble came out of the asphalt and you happen to wear eight-inch heels, spike heels that fit right in there and you twisted your ankle. Millions of dollars. No one's arguing that you didn't suffer, but you did threaten You read the record, which we do every year on our Good Friday service of Jesus being crucified. One of the worst execution methods, most painful, most suffering that can be induced to another human being. No threats. No threats. Not returning threat 
for threat even, right? If somebody threatens you, what do you do? And we're not talking about suffering. You haven't suffered anything yet except for words when somebody threatens you, right? I had somebody threaten me the other day just right out on Donovan. Folks, <laughs> I'm, I, it's under my jacket today. It was not under my jacket then. It was right in, in the truck, Right? I pull up, I need to tighten a cargo strap, and the guy says, I thought you were going to give me money. What made you think of that? You, just, you can't even stop on the side of the road without people thinking you're not going to give them money anymore. Apparently. And you threatened violence against me if I didn't give him a dollar. I didn't threaten him back. I just got in the truck and drove off. One time I succeeded. I don't succeed every time. You, most of the time we have a problem not threatening people even when all they've thrown out at us is just words. Not when we've suffered. I mean, if you, you've heard the foolishness, right? Misgendering somebody is literally slavery. Have you read a book, sir? One ounce of history? Have you read a single paragraph of history? Are you, are you literate? But Jesus suffering legitimately in the worst possible way, I think, that humanity has ever devised to execute someone, certainly to that date, and he uttered no threats. did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept, uh, I don't know, my NSB says entrusting himself. Himself isn't there. And paradidomy means to give over, like to hand over things. I don't think it's talking about Jesus entrusting himself to the Father, but entrusting vengeance to the Father, which is something we could learn from to give over the context, to give over the events, to give over the violence and the threats that he was experiencing to God and let God handle it. Paradidomy. Because God judges righteously. See, the danger is that in your own self-interest, if you respond to suffering by inflicting suffering on somebody, you would do so unrighteously. And you would incur judgment yourself for that and discipline for it. But God doesn't have that problem. Give it, give it to God. I guess that's a little different than the, the little bumper sticker that's been floating on Christian bookstores for 30 years. It's talking about your prayer life. Um, let God deal with those, with your enemies. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Famous theologian once answered somebody who asked him a classic question. Everybody thinks they're really super philosophers when they ask a pastor this question. Why do good people suffer? And his answer was this, 
It only happened once, and he volunteered. It only happened once, and he volunteered. That's been the only reason that good people have suffered. I don't agree with a lot with that theologian, but I agree with that. He suffered innocently, bearing no sin of his own. Our sins he bore on the cross. I mean, we're talking about it, right? We talk about injustice. Have you ever suffered injustice? Have you? I pray that you've never encountered what we call the Justice Department in the United States because <laughs> it's no longer interested in justice. I hope that that's the case. But you, have you, do you, can I just say fair? Have you been treated unfairly? Where you got the consequences for, negative consequences for something you didn't do. Right? In that narrow context, you might have suffered injustice. But in general, you don't. You're not a just person. You're not a righteous person, like, of your own, Right? You know, my, parent, my parents are good parents. I don't want to say that. But occasionally, they would spank one of us for something we did not do. Now, there were five of us, and we were all close in age. It could have been any one of us. And when it would be made evident, this happened to my youngest brother, Adam, all the time, because he was so tenderhearted, he would just admit to something to stop the confrontation. You know what I mean? In the lineup, he would just, he would just admit to it. He got more spankings he didn't deserve, and it would come out. That that's what had happened, and, and my mom especially would say, that, well, you probably did something. <laughs> and she was probably right. You may have suffered an isolated instance of injustice, but in general, there are many things for which you don't suffer justly, actually. I don't. The saying here, you know, essentially everyone is a felon. There are so many ways to become a felon in the United States right now that you can do it... Uh, well, you can do it all sorts of ways, and that's getting worse. Pretty soon they're going to make you a felon for what you think. That's not just science fiction. But Jesus was entirely innocent of everything, and he bore all the suffering. For all the sin of everyone ever in a moment in time. And he uttered no hate, no threats, no reviling. He fulfilled his purpose and suffered faithfully. He's the only one that's ever suffered innocently, entirely, and bore the weight of every sin, every time, past, present, and future in his body. That is not something you and I are capable of doing. What we are capable of doing is appreciating it and understanding that that is why he lived his life the way he did, and to follow in his steps and to trust in his substitution. Right? That, that kind of sacrifice does warrant some behavior modification, doesn't it? In appreciation, right? 
I understand my dad in ways that I didn't. Now we're, Priscilla and I are expecting our first grandchild this summer. Has the nerve to be expected around the same time as a wedding, so I'm not sure who we're going to see first, the wedding or the grandbaby. Uh, I, I understand a lot about my dad that I didn't understand. I, I, there were many things that he did that warranted behavior modification when I was younger that I'm just now realizing the sacrifices that he made and the love that he had. I told you this wasn't going to be a Father's Day sermon. Suck it up anyway. It might end up being one. I'm just going to have to get over it. That's what it becomes. That's what it becomes. And if my earthly father can do that, then I can certainly appreciate what Christ did for all of humanity and for me and to be able to live my life the way that he tells me to. Peter seems to think that that's the indication, right? Jesus did all of this for all of you, and this is his application. Could you just shut your trap a little bit? Could you just not talk so much? Right? That's the idea. He made no threats. He, he, no deceit was found in his mouth. He did all of this for you so that you could stop with the threats. You could stop with the vengeance. And the purpose of all that is so that we would die to sins. Some of your translations will make that a singular and that is inappropriate. Mine does it. There's a difference between dying to sin. That's identity language. That's what you get when you are in Christ. Christ died to sin. You are in him. Thus you have died to sin forensically, legally. But we talked about the difference between sin and sins in 1 John. Hopefully you remember that because it's very critical to understanding 1 John also. Um, the illustration, right, 1 John 1, 9, John does not tell us to confess your sin. He says to confess your sins, the individual actions. Here's what it would look like. I'm the oldest of five children, and occasionally I right-hooked my brother. We, did, we, we went into combat almost every day, the four, four of us boys. That's what it looked like, sometimes bloody. And sometimes, more rarely than I should have, I felt bad about it. Usually he deserved it, but sometimes I felt bad about it. And my mom would want me to confess my sin and apologize before I even felt any of that, but that's another story. Now imagine how happy my mother would have been if I had gone to my brother, say it was Eli, and I said, Eli, I'm sorry, I am a sinner. That just became an excuse, not a confession. I'm a sinner, what do you expect, you butthead? Right? That's not what it meant. That's not what John meant. Confess your sins. Eli, it was a sin to punch you in the face. 
That's confessing your sins. And Peter does not say here that these, the example of following Christ in his steps is how you die to sin. It's how you die to sins. This is how you experience freedom from those things in your life. Not from the legal penalty forensically of going to hell when you die and burning in the lake of fire, but how you quit being a butthead today. You need to die to sins by following in Christ's steps, living life the way that he did, not reviling return, not uttering threats, suffering righteously, enduring the suffering, and understanding that God finds favor in us when we do that. He favors us when we do that. So I'm about the power of sin so that we are enabled to do what is right, suffer for it, and patiently endure it because there's credit there. God looks on that with favor. So that we can fulfill our purpose. He quotes Isaiah 53, 5 here, for by his wounds you were healed. There's no qualification to that. Healing means to, to be recovered from pain, from suffering, right? You were healed. Made complete provision for you to experience both freedom from the penalty of sin and from the power of sins in your life. For you were continually straying like sheep. I used to have a, a job for a number of years and I did a lot of different things. I worked for a catering company and often I cooked. But occasionally, they would try to embarrass me. And so they would say, Josh, we want you to oversee some of these ludicrous games that we're going to have these Yankees do. Yankees are not offensive to you, right? They were literally, they, busloads from New York would come to the Don Strange Ranch in Welfare, Texas, and they would drop them off already drunk, and so it seemed very reasonable for them to then get on their hands and knees and blow on an armadillo tail to race them. This is not something the Texans do. This is something we make New Yorkers do. The other thing the Texans do not do is we do not rope sheep. But we made the Yankees rope the sheep. They're big, fluffy European sheep. And sometimes we impute, that was the only time, this helped me pastorally speaking. I realized that sheep sometimes bite. Have you ever, I have, your pastor has literally been bitten by a literal sheep. Trying to get Yankees to rope the stupid thing. We sometimes impute too much stupidity. We don't understand. European sheep are stupid. The reason they're stupid is because we made them that way. We actually prefer stupid sheep that need dogs and a shepherd or they will kill themselves 
to the rebellious, mean-spirited sheep of the ancient Near East. I had two wild-style sheep in my backyard for a while. This won't surprise you. I have about a million bees and a menagerie in the back. But these sheep were destined for the freezer very quickly. Mouflon sheep, wild-style sheep, not the big fluffy sheep. They were rebellious, rebellious sheep. That's what Jesus is talking about. You're not straying, in other words, because you're stupid or ignorant. Straying because you're prideful and rebellious. That's the straying. Actually, the word could be used for, it was used to describe deceit. You are continually being deceived. You are continually believing that God did not have your best interest at heart, but somebody else did, and so you were following after them. That's not ignorance, that's rebellion. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls or of your lives. I don't think this is talking about the moment that they believed in Jesus. The moment that they trusted Christ and received eternal life as a gift. I think he is referring to them as believers. Believers can't be deceived. Oh, now, come on. Guys, that's been going on a long time. The New Testament is full of examples of it. I think he's encouraging them. You guys were not fulfilling your purpose. You guys were being deceived. You guys were straying. You guys were being rebellious. But now you have been turned about. By the way, this is the word epistrepho. It is often translated repent. It's not actually that common. Metanoia is the common word translated repent. And it's base meaning it's about your brain. It's about the way you think about things. It's about changing your mind. That's its core. Epistrepho means to change your behavior, to change your direction. That's how most people understand all of the instances of the word repent. That's why repent is almost useless in English because it's used to translate two different Hebrew words and at least two different Greek words that mean totally different things. It'll make you look like a lunatic in interpreting Scripture if you mix these up. Epistrepho means to change your direction. And he says, you guys, as sheep, came back to the shepherd. The one who is the guardian or the episkopos, the overseer of your lives. Now, there are many, many believers in this world who are deceived. Who are, are they're in rebellion. straying in rebellion from this very principle that suffering is intrinsic to doing what is right in this world. And if you stray from that principle, you will engage in suffering avoidance your whole life instead of doing what is right. 
Once you understand and embrace that suffering is the consequence of doing what is right in the world, then you will fulfill your purpose. And there's no option. No option. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fathers that you've given to us in this life so that we would understand by example these principles. We thank you that you are our father and you have instructed us and given us this word so that we could do so. In your son's name we pray, amen. I'm alone today. Would you stand with me? We'll dismiss with uh, how marvelous. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden. See you next Sunday.